The scripture reading uh, this morning is from John chapter 5, 31 through 47. Uh, Please open your Bible to that passage and follow along with me. If you're using a pew Bible, the verses are found on page 75 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and the shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he had sent, him you do not believe, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you once again as a group of people gathered together in the name of your Son, a people who profess faith in the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, how I long for that day. When with the other saints in eternal light, we will stand around your throne, singing praise to your holy name. What more, what other blessing could we ask for, Lord, than to have your faithfulness and and your grace administered to us through this life? That preserving grace that would keep us until that day of Christ's glory where we will stand before you perfected because of him. conformed to his perfect body of glory. Not because we've deserved it, but because of what, Father, what your son has done. What he has accomplished for us. Lord, I long for that day. Many of our loved ones and friends have already gone on to experience some of that in heaven right now while they await the day of resurrection. We think of Bobby. uh, 
Teresa Rossman's brother, who's been called out of this world this past week and has stood before you, Lord. And, and as one who professed faith in you, we, we can only imagine the glories that, that are his for your sake. Lord, we pray for your comfort for Teresa and for Katie and, and the rest of the family. We pray that you would minister to them in, in ways that only you can. And uh, get glory for your name through this man's life. And even now in his death, God, would you please use it as an opportunity to reach those who need to know Christ. Lord, as we come to your word together this morning, we, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Give us a holy fear of your name, that we would be united together in a godly fear and a holy reverence and in the love of Christ that compels us to stand united and to continue preaching the gospel and advancing the kingdom in the world. Would we ask for your grace to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning we uh, come to the last section in John chapter 5. This is not going to be the last sermon in John chapter 5, though. Um, as of right now, we have two sermons in this final section. John 5, and uh, just in, uh, as, as way of reminder, what we've already seen in this chapter really is the beginning of the Jews' persecution of Jesus, which almost immediately flamed into a desire to kill him. So in verse 16 and verse 18, we find that the Jews were not only persecuting Jesus, but they were seeking to put him to death, and the two reasons for that are in John 5.18 where it says that they were seeking to put him to death because in their minds, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also making himself equal with God. And both of those constituted, uh, or at least warranted, the death penalty uh, for, for someone who was uh, either breaking God's Sabbath um, or, in their minds, claiming a man claiming to be equal with God and thereby blaspheming, blaspheming God. Well, it's interesting that, just to note and to keep in mind as we continue walking through the Gospel of John, that this desire to kill Jesus is birthed out of this scene where Jesus is more fully disclosing his glory before the Jewish people. I've mentioned this before, but it's interesting that as Jesus continues to unfold more of the glory of who he truly is to them, the deep hatred of God that was residing in their hearts was brought to the surface. So the more of the glory of Jesus that was shining upon them, the more of their hatred and their darkness, uh, the darkness of their own depravity began to rise to the surface and manifest. In other words, the more clearly they saw who Jesus was, the more they hated him. It's interesting that 
the believer's heart has been changed by the, by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit and through the effect of the gospel. The believer's heart has been changed so that it now rejoices when it sees more of Jesus. It delights when it hears more about Him or when it understands more of His inherent glory, more of His worthiness, more of His exaltation, more of His nature. It's the Christian's delight simply to study more about who Jesus is. That's why we focus on who Jesus is in our sermon times, right? But for the unbelieving heart, the more that the light of the glory of God that shines in the face of Christ, the more that that light shines upon that unbelieving heart, and the more that it exposes the darkness that's in that heart, the more that darkened, unbelieving heart will rage against the light. And so even among those who appear on the outside to be religiously pious those who appear to be obedient to the commands of God, those who would appear to be of the most religious people in the world, the Pharisees. Even in them, who are the most religiously pious, we see exemplified very clearly this deep-seated depravity that responds violently to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. So that's what we've been really noticing and paying attention to in John chapter 5 so far. Now, we've also seen how Jesus begins to respond to their desire to put him to death, right? John 5, 19 through 47, this whole segment is Jesus' response to their desire to kill him. And where he begins is by describing more clearly, or at least more fully, I don't know that we could all say more clearly, but he describes more fully the nature and the dynamics and the specifics of his relationship with the Father. He is not the Father. He is distinct from the Father. And yet, at the same time, He is one who is equal to the Father in power and in authority and in the right to be honored. Right? So here we have kind of the, a foundational principle of our doctrine of the Trinity, the, the one being of God who eternally exists in three persons, three co-equal and co-eternal Persons. That's what Jesus is unfolding for them in verses 19 to 30. And, and remember, there are two great works that the Father has given to Jesus to exemplify the reality of who he is to the world. One is his work of bringing his people to spiritual resurrection and saving them from judgment. And the second is on the last day of resurrection, by the command of Christ's own voice, raising the dead and executing judgment for the glory of the Father. That's what we've seen so far. Now the rest of John chapter 5 is devoted to two things. And if you've already zoned, <laughs> pay attention. The rest of John chapter 5 is devoted to two things. The first is giving evidence and proof that what Jesus has just said about himself is true. And then the second is explaining why the Jews and others would not accept that evidence. So you got two parts here. Jesus giving proof, giving evidence of, uh, that would vindicate or validate what he has just confessed about himself, and then explaining why the Jews would not receive that testimony, why they would not receive that evidence. We're going to look at the first one today, the, the evidence, the proof 
uh, this, this other one bearing witness to Jesus and, and, and validating what he has just confessed about himself. That's what we're looking at today. And, and then not next week, but the week after, we will be looking at why the Jews and others do not receive or accept that testimony. All right, so in verse 31, Jesus says to these Jews, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, that doesn't mean that what Jesus is saying about himself is untrue, right? It doesn't mean that if Jesus, is, as he's explaining the fact that he is the Son of God, that means that he's not true because he's bearing witness to himself. That's not what he's saying. In John 8, in fact, he actually clarifies when the, when the Pharisees charge him by saying, you're testifying to yourself and your testimony is not true. Jesus looks at them and says in John 8, 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my witness is true because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. So it doesn't, even if Jesus was only bearing witness to himself, his testimony would still be true because he is true, Right? But what Jesus is getting at here in John 5.31 is that if the only proof that he offered to these Jews concerning his claims to be the Son of God, if the only proof that he offered was his own self-witness, then there would be no legitimate reason for these Jews or for us to believe in him. If all Jesus ever did was give his own self-testimony to who he is, and there was nothing else to corroborate that testimony, then you and I would not be obligated to believe that testimony. Right? Because the law of God demanded how many witnesses to establish a fact? Two or three. So here, Jesus has just declared facts about who he is, the Son of God. He's given his own testimony to that reality. Now he's going to bring in other witnesses who will establish the reality and the fact of who he is, who he has claimed to be. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, if, if all I have are empty claims about myself, then don't believe me. But in verse 32, he affirms that he does not just have his own testimony, he actually has another. There is another who bears witness of me, Jesus says, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, whose witness is he talking about? Who is this other witness for Jesus? Well, obviously, from the rest of the passage, we know that Jesus is referring to the witness of his Father. God the Father has borne witness to the truthfulness of his Son. And in verses 33 to 39, Jesus points out three ways that the Father has testified to the truthfulness of his Son. Now, there's debate. Some people see here four different witnesses. I only see three. Three ways that the Father has witnessed concerning who his Son is. And the first one is the Father's witness through John. The Father's witness through John the Baptist. You see, in verse 33, Jesus says, You have sent to John, John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. What truth? What truth? Yeah, the truth about what Jesus has just said. right? The, the truth about Jesus' own testimony. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says, listen, you sent to John and he bore witness about the truth of what I'm saying. 
Well, we remember from John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, that God's sole purpose for John the Baptist's ministry was to be a witness to the light of his son, right? He came, he was sent by God to be a witness for the light that was coming into the world, the light of Jesus, the Son of God stepping out of glory and entering into this realm with us to shine the light of God upon us. That was John's whole mission in his ministry was simply to be a light bearing witness to the light that was coming. And as we saw in John 1, verses 19 to 29, and John chapter 3, verses 28 to 36, that's exactly what John did. John confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm simply a voice that is crying out in the wilderness, calling for people to prepare themselves because the Christ is coming. And when Jesus came and was baptized by John, John testified to everyone. John chapter 1, verse 34, John the Baptist says, I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. When Jesus was baptized by John, John beheld the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus. And by that sign, he knew that this was the one whom the Father had sent to be the Savior of the world. And so we find multiple ways that John was testifying to the realities about Jesus. He called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He called Jesus the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And every Christian in here should rejoice in the reality that you have been baptized by Christ in the Holy Spirit. He's the bridegroom who has come down from heaven to seek his bride, right? From, from heaven he came and sought her. That was John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus. And he spoke of Jesus as being from above and therefore being above all and being the one who speaks the words of God and testifies to what he has seen and what he has heard and that everyone who believes in Jesus, this Son of God, will have eternal life. And he also declared that everyone who will not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, that was John's testimony about Jesus. A testimony that these religious leaders had already heard because remember, John 1.19, they sent a delegation to John to find out what he had to say about himself. And so in John chapter 5, Jesus is drawing attention back to John's testimony in order to make a connection. He tells them, remember, you sent to John, and what did John say? He, he bore witness to the truth. What did you hear him say? And as they thought back on what they heard John say, a connection would be, ma would be made between what John said and what Jesus was saying. Jesus draws attention back to John's testimony to show that what Jesus was saying about himself was not anything different than what John had already been saying about him. What John confessed about Jesus is what Jesus was confessing about himself. Now in verse 34, Jesus says, even though John, uh, excuse me, verse 34 says, even though Jesus cites John as a witness, Jesus was not resting his entire case on John. In fact, he said, the witness that I receive is not from man. 
That is, Jesus is not appealing to John's testimony or to any other man's testimony in order to establish the truth about who he is. That's not ultimately the foundation that Jesus is resting upon. He's not saying to these Pharisees, hey, go talk to that man over there, or remember when you did talk to that man over there. See, he corroborates the reality with me. Jesus doesn't receive the testimony from other men. So why does he bring John up? Well, it says in verse 34, But I say these things to you about John, so that you may be saved. In other words, referencing John's testimony was not for Jesus' own benefit, it was for theirs. Right? Now, don't miss what we see right here. I, I was so excited to get to this point that I felt like maybe I rushed a little bit through the teaching part. Don't miss what we see right here. Jesus is looking at Jews who at this moment are wanting to do what? Kill him. He's looking at Jewish people who, these these religious leaders who are fuming over these claims that Jesus has made about himself. He looks at these who in that moment are filled with zeal to put him to death and he says, I'm seeking your salvation. I say these things to you so that you'll be saved. Now right there is a strong statement about Jesus' desire for the lost to be saved. Let me make some statements here that may be controversial. As you know, Jesus knew that these men were never going to believe in him. In fact, John chapter 10, verse 26, as I have referenced so many times in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 26 tells us that they weren't even able to believe in him because they were not of his sheep. These same men, Jesus is talking to the same men in John chapter 10 that he is speaking to in John chapter 5. And to these very men, he looks at them and he says, the reason you don't hear my voice and the reason you don't believe what I'm saying is because you are not part of my sheep. That is, you are not among the elect chosen sinners whom God has given to me to save for his own possession. You are not of my sheep. And yet here in John 5, 34... What is Jesus saying to these men? I'm saying these things to you so that you might be saved. How do we, how do we square those? How do we match those two things together? Right? It's like, it's like the, the statement of Jesus in Mark chapter 10. I think it's verse 21 where it's the, the rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what do I need to do? Master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Go keep the commandments and you will get eternal life. And you know what Jesus is doing there. He's not being serious. It's not as though you can go obey the Ten Commandments and be saved. He's trying to confront the man with his helplessness. Now this man comes back to Jesus and he says, hey, I've kept all these commandments from my youth up. What more am I lacking? There's the point. Jesus says, all right, okay, here's what you're lacking. 
You've got a heart of idolatry that loves your stuff more than you love God. And if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to repent of your love affair with things. And you've got to come follow me. It's too much for the guy, right? He loved his stuff. He had many things. And he decided, nope, Jesus isn't worth it. He's not worth my lands. He's not worth my house. He's not worth my clothing. He's not worth my food. He's not worth all the money. Jesus isn't worth it. I'm going back to what I got. But notice what it says about Jesus' disposition towards this man in this verse. Jesus knew all along this man loved his stuff more than he loved him. And yet it says in this verse that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. Now, as far as we know, this man never came to saving faith in Jesus, and yet here we find Jesus saying of this man that he loved him. How do we we mesh those two things together? If Jesus truly loved him, then why didn't Jesus enable him to be saved? Why didn't Jesus call him out of his sin and bring him to salvation? I don't know that I have the answer for that. But this does tell us a couple things in relation to the love of God and the doctrine of election. And I want you to hear me on this, okay? Is anyone else following me? Are you having the same struggle that I was having whenever I came to this verse? Or is it like not a problem for you? Okay. It was, a, it was an issue for me. Something that actually, uh, John Wesley had some amazing comments about this verse and uh, why he was not a Calvinist. Uh, I disagree with him. But, but here are a couple of things we can take away from what we see here. Jesus' desire to save these Pharisees, even though he explicitly says they're not among his sheep whom he came to save. Number one, in the heart of God, as it is revealed to us through our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a genuine, true, real desire for every sinner in this world to come to salvation. Ezekiel chapter 18, you guys know it well. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from their evil ways and repent and live. He doesn't take delight in people going to hell, which is why He sent His Son. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel. If God wanted people to go to hell, He would never have sent His Son in the sense of taking some sadistic pleasure in it. He's not pleased. He takes no delight in the wicked perishing because of their wickedness. He would much rather the wicked turn from their wicked ways and live. And so unless you're going to charge Jesus with being a liar in this verse... You have to admit that here Jesus tells these men that he was speaking to them about John because he wants them to be saved. On some level, there's a desire in the heart of God for these men to be saved. Those of you who, are, who, who hold to a Reformed theology, even as I do, should never let your theology cause you to let loose of the fact that Jesus loves sinners in this world, even those who ultimately will not be saved. And he has a true desire for them to come to salvation. Number two, 
So number one is there's a real genuine desire for, in the heart of God for every sinner in the world to come to salvation. Number two, election, the doctrine of election, will never be an excuse for why someone does not come to the Lord for salvation. The doctrine of election will never be an excuse for why someone does not come to the Lord for salvation. You hear the quibbing, right? You hear the counter-argument. They're like, wait a second. If it's only sinners who are chosen by God's grace who will be saved. John, we're going to see this really unpacked for us in John chapter 6. No man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who is drawn by the Father is raised up by the Son on the last day. That means that not everyone is being drawn by the Father. Otherwise, everyone would be raised up. Right? He says, only everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. That's John 6.45. If you don't come to Jesus, what does that say? That means that you are not hearing and you are not learning from the Father. Not everyone comes to Jesus. Those of you who hold to that reality, that you know the objection that comes to that kind of teaching. They come back saying, well, wait a second. If it's only those whom God has chosen who are going to be saved, then how can He hold anyone accountable for not coming to Jesus? Because ultimately, it's up to Him, right? It's in God's hands whether or not someone will or will not come to Jesus. So how can He blame them for not coming to Jesus when He never gave them the ability to come to Jesus? I don't profess to understand all the mysteries there. But what I can say is that what, in light of what we see right here in John 5.34, if Jesus can say to his enemies who are not among his sheep, I'm saying these things to you so that you might be saved, then will there ever be a time when anyone could look at Jesus and say, you weren't actually willing for me to be saved. Election will never be an excuse before the throne of God. All throughout Scripture, we find statement after statement after statement that declares to us very plainly the reason why people are not saved is because they will not be saved. And we're going to see that at the end of John chapter 5. They don't want to be saved. Therefore, they are not saved. Passages like this give me great encouragement in my walk with Christ. I know there can be hang-ups here with the doctrine of election and stuff like that, but I just want to throw out to you why John 5.34 is one of the most encouraging verses for me in my walk with Christ. If this was Jesus' disposition towards those who were hostile to him, and this was Jesus' disposition towards those who ultimately were going to reject him and crucify him and refuse to be saved, then how much more gentle and how much more tender and how much more compassionate and how much more willing is Jesus to save those whose hearts are soft towards him? If he's looking at these hardened sinners and he's saying, I'm saying this to you so that you would come to salvation. 
and they spurn him and reject him. If he says it to them, then how much more willing is Jesus to extend the hand of salvation to anyone who will willingly come to him? How much more willing is Jesus? How much more compassionate and tender and gentle is he towards those who by his grace and through the working of the Holy Spirit truly have genuine desires in their hearts to see Jesus' name lifted high and to see his love fill their hearts and to willingly give themselves to King Jesus in devotion and allegiance. Well, if he says that to hardened sinners, of course, his view towards those who are soft towards him is one of absolute acceptance. That comforts me. I don't know if that will comfort you, but it does me. Jesus says in verse 35, John was a burning and a shining lamp, and and even these men whom he's speaking with, these these Pharisees and, and rulers of the Jews, even these men were willing for a time to rejoice in John's light. In fact, it says in Matthew chapter 3 that they were even willing to come submit to John's baptism. Right? I mean, they rejoiced in what they were seeing and discerning in the ministry of John until the light shone on their own hypocrisy. And, they, and John began saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They rejoiced in John's light at the beginning even though they didn't continue rejoicing in that light in the end. And Jesus calls them to remember their initial joy in John so that they would see that what they were hearing John say in the beginning is the exact same testimony that they're hearing Jesus say at this moment in John 5. So John is a witness to the fact that Jesus' testimony of himself is true. He says it so that they might be saved. Now secondly, we're going to need to run through these. Secondly, the Father's, Jesus appeals to the Father's witness through his works. The Father's witness through his works. You see this in verse 36. Jesus says, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do. These works bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now John was a true witness to the truthfulness of Christ, but John was not the greater witness. A greater witness that the Father had provided to testify to who Jesus truly is were the works that Jesus was doing. Now, initially, the Jews recognized this, right? You remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3 coming to Jesus by night, and he says, Teacher, we, we, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because no one could do the signs that you're doing unless God were with him. You see, in Nicodemus, when he says, we see this, he's not just talking on his own behalf. He's speaking on behalf of all the rulers of the Jews and the Pharisees. They recognized the sign of God in Jesus' life that signified he truly was with God and God was with him. No one could do the signs that Jesus did unless God were with him. 
The apostles, in fact, would continue to appeal to this even after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ when he ascended into glory. In Acts 2.22, you find Peter saying to the Jews, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. You see what he's saying there? You saw all the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Jesus was doing. You saw them with your own eyes. Realize what that means. God was attesting to you about Jesus. You see the same thing with the Gentiles in Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter saying, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. See, the evidence that God was with this Jesus of Nazareth was the works that Jesus was doing. In fact, no one did the things that Jesus was doing. No one. There's only one person who is anywhere near a parallel to Christ in his wonder-working power. You know who that was? Moses. That's right. Moses. When God sent Moses down to Egypt, Psalm 105, verses 25 to 20, or 26 to 27... Psalm 105, 26 to 27, when God sent Moses down to Egypt, it says he sent him with many signs and wonders to perform in their midst, which proved to the Egyptians that he came before Pharaoh under the direct command of the living God, Yahweh. See, the signs that were done through Moses by God were testifying to all the Egyptians that the living God is Yahweh of the Hebrews. And he had sent Moses as his messenger to declare his will to the Egyptians. The signs were corroborating that fact to the Egyptians. Well, when Jesus stepped on the scene, he was doing signs and wonders on a scale that far surpassed what God had done through Moses. Proving that a greater Moses, a greater than Moses had come and was walking among them. This this was signifying the fact that Jesus, the, the prophet that was like Moses, that would be raised up from among the sons of Israel that Moses prophesied about, Deuteronomy 18. All these signs that Jesus was doing was was signifying that this greater than Moses had finally come. This prophet like Moses was standing in their midst. And the signs and the wonders and the miracles Jesus did proved that reality to be true. Now Jesus is going to often call attention to this fact. In John 10, 37-38, he says, If I don't do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. See, if if Jesus did not do the works of his Father, then not only would they have good reason not to believe his claims, they would actually be obligated not to believe his claims. But as Jesus himself taught, a tree is known by what? A tree is known by its fruits. If, If a bad tree is producing bad fruit, then no one is obligated to go up to that bad tree and take from that bad fruit and start eating it. But if a tree bears good fruit, what does it say about the nature of the tree? It's a good tree. 
if the fruit and the evidence that was pouring out of the life and ministry of Jesus was good, if it had the quality of God about it, then not only the Jews, but all the world would be obligated not to reject him, but to believe in him. That's why Jesus says, even if my words are not enough to convince you about me, then look at my works and let them drive you to faith. That's a pretty radical statement. This, this, these verses right here in John 10 are, are extraordinary verses. Where Jesus is saying, if my words are not enough to convince you, then look at the works that I'm doing and let them cause you to believe. That's, a, that's an amazing statement. We'll get to that when we finally, eventually get to John 10. But I want you to realize something about these works. And I, I feel like I'm rushing a bit. I'm trying to get through this. I'm sorry, but... Realize something about these works that Jesus is doing. When Jesus says, these works testify about me, he is not just talking about his works in terms of power. Obviously, that's important. Right? Works, signs, miracles, wonders, they are all manifestations of power, but that's not the only thing Jesus is referencing when he, when he calls people to pay attention to his works. It's not, hey, look at Jesus, the miracle worker. Like, like the Quran says, look at Jesus, the one who turned clay pigeon, you know, these, these balls of clay into pigeons. Or, or look at Jesus who spoke to his mother from his cradle. Right? These infancy gospel, uh, infancy gospel nonsense stuff. Anyway, he wasn't, he wasn't just using his power to cause things to float in midair to prove that he was someone special. He, he, he didn't even submit to the devil's charge to him to turn stone into bread that he might actually have food during his time of fasting. He wasn't just out there to be a miracle worker. He was there doing good with his miracles. See, it's not just about the, the power of the works that Jesus was doing. That's not the only thing that testifies about who he is. It was also the character of the works that Jesus was doing. That was ultimately testifying to who Jesus was. So what kind of works was Jesus doing? Well, he wasn't doing those kinds of works I was just talking about. Things that would draw attention to himself. No, he was doing works of goodness. And he was doing works of grace. He, he manifested works of power that were also filled with compassion and that were deep with mercy. He wasn't just... Just think about it. He didn't just heal the lepers. What did he do when he healed lepers? He put his hand on them. He didn't just speak to the lepers all the time saying, be healed. He did that. But there are other times, like at the end of Mark chapter 1, where he actually touched the leper and caused him to be healed. Why did Jesus do that? He was signifying his willingness to identify with him in his misery and enter into his pain as the Son of God who came to be his Savior. See, his work of power was not absent from the quality and the character of that work. It was manifesting God's grace and his love and his compassion for a sinful world. And there were also works that, that validated his promise of forgiveness of sins for all who would believe in him. They were works of deliverance and liberation from spiritual oppression. They were works that demonstrated his conquering power over sin and death and the kingdom of the devil. He cast out legions of demons with a word and he ordered unclean spirits to, to, to depart and they listened and obeyed him. 
You see, it wasn't just about the power of Christ's works who, that testified about Jesus. It was the character of those works. So that, as John 1.16 says, these were works that showed Jesus to be a Savior who was filled with grace upon grace for all who will come to Him. That was the sign. That was the significance of the works that Jesus did. They had the character and quality of God to them, not only the power of God. So a second one was the Father's witness through the works. Now a third one and final. Jesus appeals to John. Jesus appeals to the Father's witness through the works. And then Jesus appeals to the Father's personal witness to the Jews. Verse 37, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified of me. Now, obviously, here Jesus is appealing directly to the Father's personal witness to the Son, right? And so, so the appeal is, is not only to the witness of John or even to the, the witness of the works that the Father gave Jesus to do, as amazing as those works were. The ultimate appeal is to the Father's own personal witness to the testimony of His Son. And you can see, as Jesus is presenting these proofs and these evidences, He's going from lesser to greater, Right? He, you, you've got the witness of another man. You've got the witness of the signs and wonders and miracles he's doing. And then ultimately you have the witness of the Father himself. Lesser, greater, greatest. Now there are two ways to understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the Father's witness of his Son. Some say that this is the Father's manifest witness during Jesus' earthly ministry. Right, So it's specifically referring to the times in Jesus' life when the Father visibly and audibly bore witness to the reality of His Son. So take, for instance, Mark chapter 1, Jesus' baptism. Right? When Jesus was baptized, when He was showing His full submission to the will of His Father and the fullness of His willingness to identify with sinners according to the will of His Father to save them, when Jesus submitted to that in baptism, what did the Father do? Mark 1 says the Father ripped the heavens open and the Holy Spirit came down and the Father spoke over His Son, this is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that's definitely the Father's direct witness to His Son, right? And that pretty well proves that what Jesus has been saying in John chapter 5 is true. There's really not any more need for witnesses to be introduced into this courtroom session. That's enough. And you could say the same for Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17 or the Father's promise to glorify His name through His servant in John chapter 12, verse 28. What more was needed to prove that Jesus was telling the truth about Himself? I mean, if you saw Jesus being baptized and then saw the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit descend and you heard with your own ear the voice of the Father saying, this is in fact My Son, wouldn't that be convincing enough? Well, some believe that that's what John is referring to or what Jesus is talking about here in John 5, 37. But in light of where Jesus goes next in John 5, there's a better way to understand what he means when he talks about the Father's witness. You just look at verse 37. Jesus here says, The Father himself has testified of me. Now listen to what he says here. You've neither heard his voice nor seen his form, and you do not have his word abiding in you. 
What is Jesus focusing on when he talks about his father's witness? He's not focusing on God's form, some visible appearance of God, because he says here, you've never seen that form. Nor is he focusing on God's voice, his audible expression to the people, because he says here, you've never heard his voice. Where is he focusing? He's focusing on the word. He says, you don't have his word abiding in you. That's where Jesus sees the witness of the Father to the Son. It's revealed in the word. Now, sure, in a sense, yes, Moses saw the form of God. And the first generation of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, heard the voice of God speaking to them from the mountain, and the prophets saw visions of God, and they heard the voice of God, but that was never the norm among God's people, and that was not the experience of the Pharisees. God has determined from the beginning, even with Adam and Eve prior to the fall, God has determined from the beginning that the best way for His people to walk by faith in Him was to walk with Him in a fellowship that was yoked to His Word. And it's out of that fellowship with God through His Word that God's people experience the rich expressions of spiritual worship and communion and the intimate knowledge of God. Just go read Psalm 119 for a fantastic expression of the kind of communion with God that comes through His Word. And the point that Jesus is making here is that the Father's witness to His Son is not something that was going to be given through some special appearance of the Father or by some booming voice out of the heavens as it did on Mount Sinai. It was a witness that had already been given to them in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. None of them had seen God's form. None of them had heard God's voice. But what they did have was His Word. His word that was testifying to the reality of the coming Son who would be the Savior of the world. Now, and if you just think about this, this is the most secure testimony that was offered to legitimize what Jesus was saying. You follow me there? This was the most secure form of testimony that the Father could have given for the Son. If the Father's witness to the Son was completed when the Old Testament was given to the Jews hundreds of years prior to Jesus stepping onto the scene. If that witness of the Father was completed in the Old Testament, then its witness to Jesus could not be manipulated. It could not be changed. It could not be altered. It could not be embellished without widespread knowledge of an attempt to corrupt the Scriptures of God. Someone may be able to collude with another person in order to deceive a mass group of people. Someone may even bring out some smoke and mirrors in order to deceive people with magic tricks. Or they might even be in league with demons to do real forms of of, of miracles and signs and wonders. That's going to happen, Jesus said, at the end of time. But you can't fabricate a testimony concerning yourself that had been carved into the rock of scriptures over the last 1,500 years. 
For millennia and a half, the Father had been bearing witness to His covenant people of Israel about one whom He was going to send to be their Savior. And He gave them fantastic details, not only about who He was and what He was going to do, but when and where He would be born. God spoke in the Old Testament about a Messiah who would come to rule the nations, who would be seated upon the throne of David, who would redeem for himself a people for his own possession, not only from Israel, but also from the Gentiles. He would be a son of man, a a child born to us, a son given. And yet that son would bear the name Emmanuel, God with us, and would be able to be called El Gabor, Mighty God. God spoke throughout the Old Testament as one who would, through the power of an indestructible life, give his life as a ransom for many. Who would bear in himself the sins of his people like the lamb that God sanctified on the Day of Atonement who for the eternal salvation of His people would be crushed under the good pleasure of Yahweh, who would offer Himself as a burnt offering, who would lay down His life to put an end to transgression and sin, and who would usher in an age of everlasting righteousness for all of God's people, who through His death would justify many and bring many sons to glory. God spoke of this coming Savior as the promised seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent, the offspring of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem at the end of second temple period Jewish uh, uh, um, uh, worship whose hands and feet would be pierced, the Lord's shepherd who would be struck down by the sword of Yahweh, forsaken of God in the place of His people, but who through His sufferings would cause all the ends of the earth to remember and return to the Lord. Every single one of those phrases comes directly out of the Old Testament. And there's so much more testimony that could be given about the Father's witness of His Son from the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus says very clearly in John 24, verse 27, that there are things concerning Jesus as the Christ contained in all of the Scriptures. See, the Old Testament is is not just a record of historical uh, value. It's not even a record of God's dealings with the people of Israel. It's not a roadmap to God's future dealings with this nation of Israel. That's not what the Old Testament is. And not what any of the books of the Old Testament are actually about. Every single page of the Old Testament is about Jesus. And if you read the Old Testament in any way that doesn't lead to a further understanding of Jesus, you're not reading it rightly. That's what Jesus says. Because he goes on in the next verse to say, or verse 39, you seek the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet, these are they that bear witness of me. And you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. You see what Jesus says there? He places this grid over the entire Old Testament and he says, all of it's talking about me. And if you don't see that, then you're searching the Scriptures in vain. Right? Despite all the fullness of the Father's witness to His Son in the Old Testament, these, these Pharisees who had large, major portions of the Old Testament committed to memory, these very Pharisees still didn't get it. 
Verse 38, Jesus says, you don't have his word abiding in you, and here's how I know that. Because you're not believing in the one whom the Father has sent. See, if they had the word of God truly planted down in their souls, then when the one came about whom the word of God was speaking, they would immediately and wholeheartedly recognize and embrace him. They didn't have God's word abiding in their hearts. The Old Testament is the greatest of the Father's witness concerning his Son. It's settled, it's firm, and it's unchanging. And that's why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that far beyond any personal experience of miracles, and beyond even receiving a personal vision of Christ and his glory, and hearing the very voice of the majestic glory born to his son. Peter says, more than any of that, we have the prophetic word. The more sure prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Now I ask you, do you see that light and glory? The father's witness of his son in the Old Testament. Or beloved, do you, do you see the light of Christ shining as clearly as you want to see it in the pages of the Old Testament? It's there, and it's shining brilliantly for any and all who will seek it out. There's only one thing for us to do, and that's just to keep looking and to keep searching out Christ and his word and to keep praying to the Father until the day dawns and the morning star of Christ's glory actually rises in our hearts and we can testify with the Lord, yes, indeed, it all bears witness about you. So in conclusion, as we come to the table, In all of these ways, the father was bearing witness to the fact that his son's testimony was true. Now, with such rich testimony to the truth of Jesus, how is it that anyone could continue refusing him? Especially these eyewitnesses to John the Baptist's ministry and to the very miracles that Jesus was performing. How is it that anyone could not believe in Jesus as the Messiah? It wasn't a lack of evidence, and it wasn't a lack of witnesses or historical verification or testimony. They had all of that. Well, in the rest of John 5, Jesus gives multiple reasons for that. But at the root of it all is in verse 40, which is simply that they were unwilling to come to Jesus. They did not have a willingness to come to the Lord. And we're going to look at that more together in a couple weeks.